Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to Connecting Vets Daily for Friday, November 9th, 2018. I am your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we are going to speak to the National Commander of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, B.J. Lawrence, about what it's been like for him being in office so far. Also, his recent visit to the National Training Center and what the VFW's got going on for Veterans Day and a whole bunch more. We are also going to talk to Colonel Gerald York, United States Army, retired, and a lot to live up to with having the name York in the Army because he is indeed the grandson of Sergeant Alvin C. York, World War I legend, Medal of Honor recipient, captured 132 Germans, killed over 25 others, captured 32 machine guns, all in a day's work for Sergeant York. Colonel Gerald York is a Vietnam veteran who now is working to honor his uh, not just his grandfather, but his grandfather's brothers-in-arms from World War One, as it's the last war of the 20th century to not have a memorial in Washington, D.C., but that is going to change soon, thanks to the efforts of people like Colonel York, the World War I Centennial Commission, and others. And we're going to talk to someone who, if you're a veteran, wants to talk to you. Colonel Karen Lloyd, U.S. Army retired. That's kind of a theme today, I guess, huh? She is the director of the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress. They are looking for veterans to give them their stories. And they're not just looking for the Sergeant Yorks of the world. They want to hear from everybody. They want to hear your story. We're going to talk about that and how you can go about giving your story to the Library of Congress when we talk to Karen coming up a little bit later on in the show. Right now, we should probably move on to the headlines. And, of course, the biggest story around the country is that shooting at the bar in Thousand Oaks, California. And I saw yesterday when the message came in, a veteran buddy of mine sent it over on Facebook Messenger. Looks like the shooter was a Marine Corps veteran. Yep, unfortunately, that was the case. Ian David Long, 28 years old, identified by Ventura County Sheriff's Department as a Marine Corps veteran who used a legally obtained 45 caliber Glock to kill at least 12 people at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California. Served for five years in the Marine Corps, made it up to corporal, uh, was a machine gunner, apparently, according to DOD records. He did deploy to Afghanistan once, and that was from November 2010 to June 2011. So same time I was over there in Afghanistan, he was down in Helmand province where the Marines were. Um, the Marine Corps put out a statement to the family members saying that the Marine Corps sends its deepest condolences to the families of the victims of this senseless tragedy. Uh, General Robert Neller, the commandant of the Corps, he went a little bit more hardcore, saying heartfelt condolences to those suffering from the tragic and senseless act of violence at Thousand Oaks, that ex-Marines, and that's important, despicable actions run counter to what the vast majority of veterans are rightfully known for, serving with honor and then making positive contributions to society. Very well put by the commandant of the new United States Marine Corps, an ex-Marine, is a term that you don't hear very often. Ex-Marine, essentially to 
your Marines means they are no longer a Marine. They are excommunicated from the Marine Corps. Former Marine is something that some people, I guess it's a little bit different. Marine, of course, if you're a Marine once, you're a Marine for life, right? I like to to say Marine Corps veteran. That works. It fits. If you served in the Marine Corps and now you're out, you are a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. If someone calls you an ex-Marine, particularly if it's another Marine, a fellow Marine calling you that, and if it's the Commandant, that means that you are done. You're exercised from the Marine Corps. They want nothing to do with you, and that certainly seems to be the case here with this uh, this monster named Ian David Long. Apparently, the police out in Ventura County, California, say that they had contact with him over the years, and that can sometimes lead to uh, the conspiracy theorists saying, well, if they knew who this guy was, why wasn't he in prison? Why didn't they do something to him? Well, they knew him. That doesn't mean that he was doing things that would make you think he'd walk into a country bar and start shooting it up. He had some stuff like he was uh, apparently the victim of a battery at a bar three years ago. Uh, Earlier this year, there was apparently some sort of domestic disturbance at his house, and the police went out to that. Uh, These aren't good things, but they're not the kind of major red flags, maybe, that you would uh, think you'd see. But as we've learned, there aren't always red flags. Occasionally there are. Occasionally there are people who no one knows anything about them. They're very secretive. They do all very strange stuff going forward uh, and leading up to these shootings. Think of the guy in Las Vegas who, boy, that's a that's a, a horrifying coincidence. Some of the people that were at that concert in Las Vegas were also at this bar in Thousand Oaks. Can you imagine being at both of those things in the span of what, a year just over, It's uh, or just under, I should say. It's uh, a nightmare scenario, an absolute nightmare scenario. But we uh, we know that that guy was a very odd one, did a lot of strange things, but nobody really did anything about it. This uh, ex-Marine who did this shooting, there was uh, an interview with an old roommate of his that said he was a very strange guy. But again, even the strange guy said, I don't know if he's uh, if I ever thought he'd do something like this. This is just shocking to me, you know. It's uh, it's it's shocking to everybody when something like this happens. There's something wrong with this individual. Clearly, this is not something that normal people do. Um, of course, he uh, he used a firearm. He's a marine, which makes him uh, probably more deadly and accurate with a firearm than your average person. He killed twelve people. Uh, he also was dead. Uh, they, the last I saw, they weren't 100% sure whether he took his own life or he was killed by law enforcement. He did kill uh, at least one law enforcement officer, that being Sergeant Ron Helis, 29-year law enforcement veteran who was just about to retire. I mean, that is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Read some interviews with friends of uh, Sergeant Helis, and they said, you know, family man, had kids, was looking forward to retirement, coming up on 30 years, which is when he was going to call it a day. And then uh, trying to help people, he ends up uh, having his life taken from him by this monster. This monster who happens to have served in the United States military. I mean, you know, what can you say about that? It's obviously not all of us that are uh, a danger to society. It would be a tiny, tiny minority of us. But that's the case with any group, I think. Any group that's ever a danger to anybody, it's going to be the small minority of that group that is the danger. A tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Unfortunately, that's all it takes for a nightmare scenario to unfold. It's the truth. 
It's the truth, and it's been happening for as long as people have been around. Crazy people are going to do crazy things. You know, unfortunately, not all of them can be identified and stopped ahead of time. I wish they could. I know we all wish that they could, but it's simply not the way that it works. We've got some news that I know a while back we were wondering if we'd ever get an update on this. Well, we have. And I'm speaking of the ambush of the Green Berets in Niger that killed four U.S. soldiers, including a couple Green Berets and a couple support uh, troops there as well. The military has reportedly punished six troops, according to Army Times, including a two-star Air Force general for their roles in the 2017, October 2017. Well, it was over a year ago now. Niger ambush that resulted in the deaths of four American and four Nigerian soldiers, And that's what the New York Times is reporting. Major General Marcus Hicks of the Air Force was the commander of all special special operations troops in Africa. They've uh, they've punished him and then also two members of the Green Beret team that was ambushed. Three others in the team's chain of command were also reprimanded. Uh, Those punished reportedly include the Green Beret team leader, a gentleman by the name of Captain Mike Perizzini. And his second-in-command, who was a master sergeant, whose name I'm not seeing in the reports, uh, those two faced reprimands over their planning and team planning and team training prior to the mission. Apparently, taking things a bit too easy out there was the problem. Oh, we have a celebrity watching on Facebook Live now. Don't you worry, Steve Smith. We're going to talk about you here in just a moment, and I think we're going to have to have you on as a guest coming up here shortly. But uh, the 6,300-page investigation was detailed by the Pentagon in May saying that mistakes leading up to the ambush were widespread. And there is an unclassified eight-page summary released for public viewing, uh, and it essentially said that the enemy achieved tactical surprise there. Forces were outnumbered approximately three to one. That's according to the investigation. But they also said that the training and preparation uh, that, that took place was unacceptable, that it wasn't enough, that they didn't take it seriously, and that that's essentially why they ended up uh, being ambushed and the enemy was able to achieve tactical surprise. So the AFRICOM investigation had 23 findings. Three of them are about uh, the ground commanders involved with filing and approving paperwork for the mission, so an administrative thing. Here's what it didn't do, according to Army Times. There's no recommendation for any type of punishment of those commanders. Instead, disciplinary actions were referred to SOCOM for appropriate action. So essentially saying, hey, we're going to uh, send this into SOCOM and let them go ahead and take care of it. Will we ever know exactly what happens to the people who have been named? I don't know. I didn't know if we were going to hear much about this ambush. Uh, It looks like there's also some more information starting to come out about that Green Beret who was allegedly maybe killed by a couple of SEALs in some sort of accident or murder or something. Who knows? It depends on who you believe when you're talking about that. It's hard to know what to believe. And it's hard to know what to believe about the news that comes out from north of the border. Up in snowy Canada, there are interesting things going on. There are, of course, all sorts of monsters and Yeti up there. Uh, Curlers are just wandering around. Gangs of curlers sweeping their way from one location to another. Everybody's got a Zamboni on the road, which makes it crazy slippery. But they know how to drive on the ice up in Canada, right? Well, you know what else is up in Canada? 
some United States military veterans who've decided to uh, make their homes there. And we're going to talk about one and an unexpected visitor to his area because there's a story being reported in the Cape Breton Post. Cape Breton, of course, in Nova Scotia, which is on the east coast of Canada. And it's a story about a uh, sailor who's actually a Marine. His name is Andy Bunn. So he served in the Marine Corps, but now he likes to go sailing. He's got a nice boat, takes it out, goes up and down the coast, has a great time. Well, Andy Bunn was sailing up near Cape Breton, and guess what happened? He shipwrecked. So you have a Marine who then became a sailor, because that's the dream of every Marine, isn't it? Ha <laughs> ha, Joe Chinelli, I know you're out there listening. Uh, he became a sailor, and he was shipwrecked off the rocky coast of Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. It's a dangerous place. You get up to the northeast, Maine, Canada, it's not like sunny beaches, you know? It's not like you're in Florida or California. It's rocks and all the good stuff that creates those tasty, tasty lobsters and other things. So he got shipwrecked there, and when he went to get off of the ship, he essentially only took a backpack and his dog. And that star touched off apparently the biggest mystery in Cape Breton, maybe in a very long time, or in the area, I suppose we should say. It's Coxheath is the specific area outside of Cape Breton. And this, uh, it may become the national story of Canada because this Marine leaves the boat there, starts walking with his dog, walks through town. Nobody knows who he is. They're like, who's this guy? Apparently there's a boat that came and crashed ashore. Guy wanders off of it with a dog, just silently walks through town and leaves. I imagine him looking over his shoulder with piano music playing like Bruce Brenner at the end of every episode of The Incredible Hulk. He's just slowly making his way through Coxheath, Canada, looking over his shoulder, sadly, back at the town, maybe looking back at his boat where he left everything other than a backpack worth of stuff and his dog. So what this guy does, Andy Bunn, the Marine who became a sailor, as is the dream of every Marine. Oh, I love saying that. Left behind everything that he didn't need to take with him, and that included photographs and documents. So he contacts the Cape Breton Post, or maybe they contacted him. I don't know. It goes both ways sometimes. And basically asked, hey, if there's anybody up there who might be able to go out to my boat and get some of my stuff, would you? Would you go up there and get it for me and send it back to me, you lovely Canadians? And, of course, the Canadians are lovely, lovely people. But there's also some Americans living up in Canada. Some of them are pretty lovely, too. Some of them I don't know, so I can't really comment on them. But one in particular is a United States Navy veteran, a retired petty officer first class by the name of Steve Smith. Steve lives in that same town, basically, and said, well, you know what? Maybe I can go out and find this guy's stuff. So that's what he did. He and his lovely wife, Heather, and I know that she's lovely, and I know that he's a lovely gentleman as well, because I was stationed with them. We worked together at AFN Siganella, Steve and I, and Heather was over there, of course. And now, after he, came, he finished up his time in the Navy, they settled in Heather's native Canada. Steve went out to the boat and got the guy's stuff. And what kind of stuff did he get? Well, you can go to the Cape Breton Post to check out the story on that, and we're going to have it on ConnectingBets.com because if Steve Smith thinks he's going to get away without doing an interview about this incredible story, he's out of his damn mind. So he goes out there. He finds the American flag that was flown off of the stern of this boat. That's right, the stern, not the aft end or the back, the stern of the boat because that's what boats have at the back. That's a little inside joke over the Facebook uh, post of the article here. But he also got some pretty incredible stuff, like a Happy Veterans Day Daddy card 
from Andy Bunn's child to him. Of course, a Marine Corps veteran, as I said. Um, really just fantastic. Steve and his wife go walking out there, and uh, they get this stuff, and they, they got it back to Andy Bunn. It's really a heartwarming story. And I'd like to talk to both Andy Bunn and Steve Smith about this, so I think we're going to have to do that. Do they curl? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, they just tried curling, I believe, for the first time very recently, or at least one of them did. Uh, but they are not what I would consider curlers. They're people that went to, like, an open house and threw a couple stones. That's all that went on there. So really uh, a truly great story of two veterans meeting up in a very interesting way, even outside of the country. Andy lived on that boat. It was his life. But, of course, when you're shipwrecked and you've got to get off, you don't wait on the boat to hope, well, maybe the tide comes in and washes it off. What ended up happening was he grabbed everything that he needed for the day and took off. So a backpack full of stuff, his dog, you're not going to leave your dog behind, you know that. And he left and then spent six days getting back to Virginia, where he's originally from. And Steve Smith saw the story on that and said, eh, I could probably go out there. I was a sailor. He was a Marine. Let's help each other out. So Steve Smith goes out there and does it. Cape Breton Post has the uh, the story on it, and we're going to get uh, we're going to get our own version of it up on ConnectingVets.com. Steve right now is the uh, the proprietor of a coffee bean company at the farmers market up there. It's called Bungalow Beans. You can follow them on social media. And uh, really, uh, I'd love to to tell you that he was uh, a, a great guy, but Steve Smith was just. The unfriendliest, meanest guy, always had a frown on his face. Never a nice thing to say to anyone. So it's just shocking that he would help someone. I'm kidding. Steve Smith was a delightful man. One of the nicer people that I met while I was in the Navy. And his wife, Heather, as well. They're both lovely people. Although they live in Canada and they don't curl. So it makes me question their uh, Canadian patriotism. Canatriotism? I don't know what you would call it. <laughs> but anyway, good job. Good on you, Steve Smith. Bravo Zulu, shipmate, for going out there and helping out a Marine who crashed his boat. Which really, <laughs> that's what the story is. Marine becomes sailor, uh, crashes boat, sailor helps Marine. It's, you know, tale as old as time, right? How many times have we seen that happen out there? All right, we've got a couple of things to talk about when it comes to Veterans Day, which, of course, is just around the corner this Sunday. It's an important Veterans Day because it marks 100 years since the signing of the armistice that ceased hostilities in World War I. It didn't end World War I. It stopped the shooting. The Treaty of Versailles that was signed to end World War I, that took place in the uh, early part of 2000, or sorry, 1919. Not 2019. That would be a long war. 100 years. Wasn't there a 100 years war? I seem to remember something about that in history class. Ah, the English and the French were always fighting with each other. So Armistice Day was November 11th, 1918. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. If they had a time machine, they could have made it of the 11th year, but you know they didn't have the technology yet. We still don't, as a matter of fact. And that's actually where Veterans Day came from. So along with this being the 100th anniversary of the armistice that ended uh, the hostilities in World War I, this is also the 100th anniversary of what would become Veterans Day because Armistice Day eventually merged all of the wars together as one day to celebrate veterans. And we've got a story up on this that explains that and also explains for uh, non-veterans out there specifically the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. 
Because there are people out there, miserable, miserable people, who if you say happy Memorial Day to them, will correct you on the spot. They're typically going to be veterans. They're typically going to uh, be very direct about it. Hopefully they do it in a nice way. Well, actually, Memorial Day is the day that we celebrate those who gave all, those who gave their lives. Veterans Day is the good one. You know, that's the way it was described by JT from Black Rifle Coffee yesterday. Veterans Day is the good one. Veterans Day is the one where we remember all the good times and all the bad times that were kind of good because you had your friends there and you were sitting next to each other in the muck or in the rain or on a ship in the middle of nowhere or at Minot Air Force Base wondering if uh, anyone knew that you were still alive out there. There are many ways that you can remember it. So that's what Veterans Day is all about. You know, and some people don't understand the difference. Do we need to correct them? I don't know. You know, if someone says Happy Memorial Day, I usually say like, oh, well, thank you. I mean, what, what's, what, what real thing are you going to do other than probably make that person feel bad by going after them about saying, oh, it's not actually a Happy Memorial Day. We know what it's about. That's what matters, right? Of course it is. So there's that. And then, of course, the question, is the U.S. the only country that observes Veterans Day? No. No, 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 no. Armistice Day, a.k.a. Remembrance Day in some countries, uh, they they still do it on November 11th. Uh, although in Great Britain, they do it on the Sunday closest to November 11th, which this year just happens to be November 11th. Oh, man, I'd love to get up to New York and march down Fifth Avenue, John, but I, I was just in New York last week. I've been... Single parenting this week, and I I don't know if I'd be able to make it up there, and I don't know if I'd be able to finish that march if I did, but Jason McCarthy, founder of GORUCK, he's going to be one of the grand marshals of the Veterans Day Parade taking place in New York City this Sunday. Really a fantastic thing. You should check that out. We had an interview with him uh, a few days ago. You can go to the archives of the show to check that out as well. You know, it's... it's an important day, Veterans Day, and this year, on the 100th anniversary of a war that's been at least to some extent, forgotten or overshadowed. Overshadowed by World War II because it was on such a grander scale. Uh, World War I was massive, of course. World War II, though, much more massive. Also involved a significantly longer period of time that the United States was participating. We were in World War I for just about a year exactly. World War II, you're talking four years. So, uh, you know, significant difference there. There's also the media aspect. You know, there were silent films in the World War I era. By World War II, the Hollywood machine was out there and doing its thing. But there has been a movement to remember World War I recently. And maybe it had to do with coming up on the 100th anniversary where you had EA put out the game Battlefield One, which... It was a first-person shooter, a multi-person, multiplayer online shooter, but was set in World War One. And also, if you played the single-player version of the game, told uh, kind of heartbreaking stories of those who were in World War One and what a nightmare it was. How the technology had advanced, but the tactics hadn't, which led to just some horrifying, horrifying sights and events. It was birth and advent of modern warfare. It shaped the world sociopolitically uh, in ways that we still feel today. But again, it's one that a lot of people don't know as much about. Not as many war uh, war movies about it, certainly. Yeah, you've got Sergeant York, and of course, uh, we're going to talk to Colonel Gerald York, the grandson of Sergeant York. That was Gary Cooper. Uh, he won Best Actor for that, I believe. I think the film was up for Best Picture. Came out in 1941. A lot of people saw it as kind of a uh, one of the first... World War II propaganda-ish Hollywood films that went out there, the movie Sergeant York. But 
when you think of, of World War I, you think of trench warfare, right? Well, that's not all that World War I was. There was a lot more going on. World War I was the advent of machine guns first being used on large scale, chemical weapons, mustard gas, all those things, tanks, aircraft. I mean, if you go down the list of all the things that were introduced to warfare in World War I, it's, for the most part, the last one where, where significant amounts of new technology were introduced all at the same time. Submarines, submarine warfare, the U-boats, the sinking of the Lusitania. You can think of all, all of these uh, these advances, I guess you could say, although doesn't it feel weird to call them advances? Ways that advance it and make it easier for you to kill people in large numbers. I mean, I guess they're advancements, but... Ugh. It was an incredibly important moment for the world, also for the United States. Marked our entrance onto the world stage. It began the United States as a world power, as the world looked to us at the end of World War I as the mediators. Yeah, we were involved in it, but we didn't live over there. We didn't have the 500, 600-year histories between the different empires that were fighting back and forth over there. So it was a benchmark for the world and for the United States. And this Veterans Day, and happy Veterans Day to all my brothers and sisters in arms out there, as well as their families, this Veterans Day, take a moment to remember those who went before us in World War I. There's none of them left here these days, but the things that they did are still being felt and will be for years and generations to come. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk to B.J. Lawrence, National Commander of the Veterans of Forum Wars, and Colonel Gerald York, the grandson of World War I Medal of Honor recipient and legend Sergeant Alvin York. Connecting Vets Daily will be back right after this. Welcome back to Connecting Vets Daily from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is the slogan. It's what we do and where we do it. Well, right on the website, ConnectingVets.com, and also on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Each and every day, there is continuous, fresh, new content going up, all of which aims to help you be as informed as possible and live your best veteran life. So give us a follow, again, at Connecting Vets on all social media platforms. Another organization that's on all social media platforms is the one that's headed up by my next guest. The Veterans of Forum Wars has been in existence for a long, long time and done a lot of great, great work for veterans. That's now continuing under the stewardship of National Commander B.J. Lawrence, who joins us now. B.J., good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Eric. Just fine. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Of course, this is the, not the first time we've had you on, but it is the first time you've joined us since becoming National Commander. How would you say your time in that office has gone so far now that you've been in for a, a few weeks anyway? <laughs> uh, very busy and very rewarding. Well, those are two things that you want to look for, of course, in a job like National Commander of the VFW. And as I understand it, you said you've been very busy, and that was true this week where you were at the National Training Center, NTC. What can you tell me about that experience and why you went out there? Uh, in fact, I'm just I'm just leaving uh, the NTC area, Eric. Uh, it was a great experience. I uh, had the opportunity and... Uh, the privilege to travel out to California and visit the national uh, U.S. Army's National Training Center um, and actually observe a uh, armored brigade in a rotation of training, uh, preparing them for a pre-deployment out to uh, theater. 
Well, that is very cool. And, you know, for someone, you, you served, of course, you are a member of the VFW, you have to be to become a national commander, but you served in a previous era. What was it like seeing how they're training out there today in the U.S. Army? I mean, what did you notice and what stuck out to you the most? Well, it, it was incredible, Eric. Uh, first and foremost, uh, it just reconfirmed for me uh, the commitment and uh, professional uh, professionalism and readiness of our uh, of the best military uh, force in the world. Uh, but times have changed. Uh, I got a little bit of an education on uh, field artillery from a, a young Army soldier, a female, 17-year-old gunner. Uh, who walked me through the paces of being an artillery gunner. So uh, uh, the the footprint has changed. Uh, we have uh, very uh, dedicated soldiers, and I was quite surprised to, to learn her age, but there she was out at the National Training Center um, serving her country proudly. Well, that is very cool, and it's one of those interesting things. You know, most of us, when we leave the military, we don't get the opportunity to go back into those training situations and kind of see how things are really happening on the ground there, but you got to do that. What was the biggest takeaway for you, you know, as you're preparing to leave right now from the National Training Center? Uh, what's going to stick with you the most as you leave? The uh, the high morale uh, and the dedication of, of our uh men and women serving in armed forces. Uh, it was second to none. Uh, they took their training uh, very seriously. Uh, they were very dedicated. Uh, in fact, this is this is a piece of a, a bigger puzzle. I'm looking forward to attending some uh, further training here uh, in, within the next 60 days at another uh, Army installation, and uh, then I'll have the opportunity to travel overseas and actually meet back up with uh, one of these brigades uh overseas and uh watch them during their their during their deployment there that is really really cool stuff of course you're leaving uh the national training center now and heading to washington dc where i believe you're going to be for at least a portion of the veterans day celebrations how are you viewing veterans day 2018 bj and how are you going to be celebrating it well, we're, uh, our national organization leadership is going to, as you mentioned, uh, we're going to participate in a couple of programs. Uh, the two programs that I will be participating in is uh, one there at Arlington National Cemetery and one at the uh, Vietnam Memorial. Uh, our folks out uh, across the, the nation at our VFW post are going to uh, be participating in uh, conducting uh, Veterans Day programs. Uh, doing our uh, buddy poppy distributions and uh, staying engaged in their communities to uh, observe this uh, Veterans Day and uh, and this hundredth uh, uh, anniversary of World War One. Of course, this is a very special Veterans Day. As you mentioned, the 100th anniversary of the armistice that ended hostilities in World War One. Now, the Treaty of Versailles actually happened in 1919. So we are 100 years from the ending of the shooting, essentially, of World War One. What does that mean to you when you think back over those 100 years, being the leader of an organization uh, that really was founded by World War One veterans in large part? Uh for me, it, it's uh, it's a little emotional. Uh, it uh, gives me an opportunity to reflect on the uh, the sacrifices, really, of our nation's servicemen and uh, the legacy shaped uh, by their service uh, has shaped our social, uh, 
military and political fabrics uh, to where we are today. Uh, those uh, first uh, veterans that formed our organization back in 1899, uh, they left the footprint for what we are today. Why do you think it's important that we recognize uh, those World War One veterans despite the fact that none of them are still here with us. And, of course, you can go back to uh, the Civil War, Revolutionary War, and all these wars where none of the veterans are still here with us. Do you think it is still incredibly important for us and for the VFW as an organization to acknowledge them? Uh, we must never forget, Eric. Uh, their, through their service, uh, they have uh, allowed us to uh, evolve in, into a, uh, a free country and, and enjoy the freedoms that we continue to enjoy today. Uh, not just our World War One veterans, but uh, uh, veterans across uh, all wars, across all services. Uh, we have to continue to honor their legacy and their service. We're speaking with the National Commander of the Veterans of Forum Wars, B.J. Lawrence. B.J., when you talk about honoring veterans, wanted to get your take on something that happened uh, just this past weekend on Saturday Night Live, a long-running uh, supposed comedy show on NBC, where Pete Davidson mocked uh, a friend of the show, a previous guest of the show. Now, Congressman-elect Dan Crenshaw, of course, the Navy SEAL, lost his eye to an IED in Afghanistan, very nearly lost his life. Life. What was your take on the comments on SNL about Congressman-elect Crenshaw? Uh, Eric, uh, you know, I do not watch Saturday Night Live. I did not see the segment uh, when it appeared. I heard about it after the fact and then doing some research. Uh, quite frankly, for me, the first thing that came to mind uh, was uh, the treatment that some of our Vietnam veterans uh, endured returning from the Vietnam War. Uh, I was appalled. Uh, I don't think uh, a veteran's uh, military service, especially uh, uh, one such as uh, Dan Crenshaw, who uh, uh, suffered an injury to an IED blast uh, in Afghanistan, I, I don't think any veteran, uh, especially with their service, should be the subject of, uh, of jokes or one-liners. Uh, if anything, if anything, we should... Uh, take the opportunity at every chance to remind people to honor that service and their sacrifices, uh, not make jokes at them uh, to, uh, to improve a show rating or, or to, uh, to uh, merely participate in a, com a comedy skit. Certainly. Although I will say I did like the response from Congressman-elect Crenshaw where he said, you know, I have a tough skin. I just uh, wish they wouldn't have done that and wish they wouldn't have mocked my injuries. It's one of those interesting things, too, where they're mocking a war hero. But I don't really recall SNL doing any mocking of, oh, Bo Bergdahl, for example, who there's plenty to mock there. So uh, interesting correlation between those two things. Also, BJ, before you go, I wanted to talk to you about something new over at the VFW. Of course, a long-running organization that's been doing great things for uh, many, many years now. There's a new logo that the VFW has just put forth. Uh, it's a little bit different from the Maltese cross that I'm used to seeing and that, in full disclosure, as a VFW member, uh, sometimes wearing as a lapel pin or something. What made the VFW decide to move forward on uh, developing a, a new logo? Well, Eric, uh, this is not the first time uh, over time that the BFW has uh, decided to, uh, to change the look of their, their logo. 
Um, we've done it historically uh, in the past, uh, on average, maybe every eight to ten years. Uh, certainly, I've seen a few of those changes during my 20-plus uh, years as an active member of the BFW. Um, this particular change uh, just changes our uh, our logo look of uh, the letters PFW. It does not uh, affect the Cross of Malta, as, as you spoke about. Uh, the way our organization views the, the Cross of Malta, it is actually our official seal of the organization. Um, we put a, a lot of pride in that seal. Um, we honor that seal as, as the prestigious uh, seal of the organization. So uh, what we've done is uh, we've encouraged our, our membership to view the seal uh, as just that, as the official seal. And... Um, transition to using our uh, our new brand and logo um we're 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 very excited that it's going to uh give some new appeal to the uh organization uh, a new bolder uh brighter vibrant look uh but certainly in no way uh does it does a brand or logo affect uh as you know who an organization is the vfw uh continues to be the on the forefront uh, uh nationally uh, in serving our veterans, uh, military, and their families. And uh, certainly, uh, we're going to continue that service uh, that we've uh, continued since 1899. We've been speaking with the National Commander of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, B.J. Lawrence. B.J., if people want to find out more about the VFW, if people are interested in finding out you know, what it takes to become a member and who's eligible, where can they go to do so? They can visit us on the web at uh, www.bfw.org. And I, as I always do, I remind all our listeners, uh, you do not have to be a member to uh, visit the VFW or to uh, seek assistance through our organization. We're there to help all veterans. It's not uh, based on membership in the organization. So please, if, if you're a veteran and you need some help and the uh, VFW can uh, possibly help you with your needs, please reach out contact us on the web or or drop us an email or one one thing i might suggest just stop by and visit your local vfw post that's how i ended up joining the vfw i just swung by one day the boys up in huntington we're glad to have me by so bj thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it and uh we hope to talk to you again soon thanks for having me on the show again eric and i look forward to our next visit thank you Joining us now is retired Colonel Gerald York to talk about the World War I Memorial and how we can help honor the members of the Armed Services of the Great War. Good morning, Colonel. How are you doing today? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastically, thank you. And, you know, of course, your name carries a bit of weight historically with the United States Army. As such, you know quite a bit about the First World War and your family's history with that war. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how the York family remembers Sergeant York and World War I. Uh, well, uh, of course, my grandfather was in World War One and was at the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in 1918. And on October the 8th, 1918, was in a battle where he ended up capturing 132 prisoners, uh, knocking out over 20-something machine gun nests, and killing over 20. Uh, for this, he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
And of course, it is an amazing story that went on to become uh, one of the top movies of its day uh, in the 1940s, I believe it was. Um, Sergeant York's story in the Army is a fascinating one, coming from Tennessee, going into the Army, not really being interested in it at first, but ending up with the Medal of Honor being awarded to him for his actions. Is that something the family's been very proud of, or do you guys kind of keep it a little quiet when, uh, when, when, when thinking about Sergeant York and and talking about World War One, uh, we're very proud of it. Uh, my grandfather was a very low-keyed individual. Uh, he never really talked about the war. He never talked about his actions, and uh, I would, you know, only after some prodding show you his medals uh, that he kept at his house uh, until he passed away. From what I understand and what I've learned and read about your grandfather over the years, after his time in the military, his focus shifted more to education, specifically education in the rural area of Tennessee where he lived. And through that is kind of how the movie came around. He was looking to raise funds uh, for that. Was serving in the military something that continued on as a tradition in the family? I know that, of course, you served, rising to the rank of colonel. But uh, what was the family's feelings on military service following your grandfather? Uh, we had, uh, I had a couple of cousins that served. Uh, I guess my, my father served during World War II. Uh, I was, of course, in, in Vietnam and served for 31 years. My son was in Iraq and served for 17 years. So for our side, uh, for my father's side, it, it, it definitely had an impact. Well, it certainly sounds like it. And of course, Sergeant York, Sergeant Alvin York, hero of World War I at the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, uh, one of the, the big names from World War I, along with uh, luminaries like General John Blackjack Pershing and so on. Uh, world War I marked the entry of the United States onto the world stage as a world power, really a, a, a bell mark in American history. Despite that, there is no World War I memorial currently in Washington, D.C. I know that that is uh, looking to change. We've spoken to the sculptor, Sabin Howard, who's working on the memorial. We've spoken to the architect, the World War I Centennial Commission. What can you tell us from your perspective about the World War I memorial and what it might mean to you and your family? Well, I, I think the reason probably there wasn't a World War I uh, memorial is because all of the World War I veterans have passed. So it's really up to us and the World War I Centennial Commission to carry the torch forward. Uh, they had groundbreaking a year ago, uh, the design has been accepted. There's actually a model that's uh, Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. this weekend. And people can see a copy of or see a sketch of the memorial at www.cc.org. Uh, also, they can check that to see what kind of activities uh, to commemorate World War I are going on in their state. And uh, they can contribute and see how they can support uh, the monument or the memorial that's being constructed in D.C. Is it disappointing to you uh, as a veteran yourself, of course, who served in Vietnam, that we're now nearing 100 years this weekend of the signing of the armistice that ended World War One? yet there's still not a memorial 100 years later. We have memorials to Vietnam. We have memorials to the Korean War, World War II. Is it disappointing to you that one for World War I never got done during the time that those men and women who served over there were still around to enjoy it? Uh, yes. I, I think World War I has kind of been the forgotten war. 
that was called the Great War. And I think after World War One, people thought, well, that's it. We went to war and we're not going to do that again. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if it was that's the reason. But, yeah, I, I, I hate that there wasn't a World War I memorial prior to all the passing of, of all the veterans. But I think uh, now there's two reasons why we need a memorial. One is to remember those that served, those that sacrificed. But the other one is it's not taught very much in school anymore. And I think having a memorial in D.C., young people can come, they can learn and ask questions and see the impact. And you're right, World War I had a tremendous impact not only on the United States, but uh, worldwide with the division in the Middle East. It, it had an effect that is still being felt to this day in many ways, uh, some positive, some negative, but really was an important part of uh, an important mark, an important time in history. When it comes to the memorial itself, how is this being paid for? Again, you don't have any World War I veteran groups still around, as there are unfortunately none left with us. Uh, who is raising the money and how is it planned to be paid for? Uh, the World War I uh, Centennial Commission is actually uh, raising money. Uh, like I said, people can go to www.cc.org, see how they can contribute. Uh, there's donations. Uh, corporations have donated. And uh, it's, it's a worthwhile project to remember those veterans and remember the sacrifices that they made 100 years ago. It is a long time ago, but those sacrifices are no less important. And as we mentioned, this memorial is hopefully on the way and hopefully rather soon. Can you give us any sort of update on the progress that we've had uh, on the memorial thus far? Well, you know, the groundbreaking was a year ago, and uh, now all the approvals have been obtained for the monument to be at Pershing Park. Uh, the, the model has been made, has been cast. And so now it's just uh, waiting for the money to, to actually construct the memorial. And I would also mention if people go to the website, uh, this Sunday there's going to be bell ringing across the nation at 11 o'clock. Of course, the armistice was at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month. So there's going to be bell ringing ceremonies at 11 o'clock across the nation and people, if you don't have a bell, they can go to the website and actually download an app and program your phone that will ring 21 times. The bell will ring 21 times at 11 o'clock on Sunday. That app, of course, is Bells of Peace. It can be found on the World War I Centennial Commission website as well as in the, the Google Store and the App Store for Apple, all those places. I highly recommend people check that out. It's really a cool thing. Now, where can people go if they want to contribute to this? I know the World War I Centennial Commission is doing everything that they can uh, to raise the funds that are necessary. Of course, they need some help with that. So if people are interested in helping out and in ensuring that the World War I Memorial gets done sooner rather than later, how can they do that? Uh, they can go to the website, www.cc.org, and uh, contribute through that. And that would be, <clears throat> that would be great, and it would be... Uh, I think fantastic to have this memorial uh, constructed as soon as possible to remember those that made their sacrifices. Colonel, if there's a message that you could provide to the veteran community, as we are right near or right on Veterans Day, I should say, uh, what would that message be to all of the veterans out there? Well, I, I think it would be to thank all the veterans for their service. 
and their sacrifice and for their families that have sacrificed as well. Uh, because uh, veterans' service in the military affects not only the service member, but also the family of the service member. So I would, I would say if you know a veteran this Veterans Day weekend, be sure to thank them for their service and what they've done. Colonel Gerald York, grandson of Medal of Honor recipient, World War I hero, Sergeant Alvin York. Thank you so much for joining us on Connecting Vets Daily today. We really appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You're listening to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. And, man, we want to thank Colonel York for his time today. And really, I'm so glad that there's work being done to remember those who served in World War I. As he said, it's kind of been a little bit forgotten, a little bit overshadowed. World War II was uh, on such a different scale. World War I was massive. It was the first war of the modern era, I suppose you could say. But World War II just expanded on everything. And because of that, and the fact that the U.S. was involved in World War II for over three years longer than we were involved in World War I, uh, it's just a different scenario. It gets a lot more attention. You also have the fact that by the time World War II came around, remember, of course, you had Germany uh, kicking things off in World War II in the 30s, the U.S. getting involved in 1941. Um Media had evolved by that time. I mean, World War One, we're talking silent picture era. World War II, we're talking Hollywood box office era. And that makes a difference. There were movies about World War II coming out as World War II was going on with some of the biggest stars of the day. Your Spencer Tracys and your Humphrey Bogarts. I mean, this stuff was happening. It's very, uh, it's very important aspect of it. It's part of why World War II gets so much more recognition. It's one of the reasons. But World War I was incredibly important. Again, as Colonel York alluded to, uh, a lot of the issues taking place in the Middle East, not all of them, but a lot of them can be traced back to arbitrary borders that were drawn up after World War I and then some more that were come up with after World War II. Uh, It, of course, led to the dissolution of the empires that generally ran Europe at the time. Uh, It's a fascinating time period, and thankfully, because of people like Colonel York, organizations like the World War I Centennial Commission, and then, of course, media projects like Dan Carlin's Blueprint for Armageddon. If you haven't checked that out, I highly, highly recommend Dan Carlin's Blueprint for Armageddon. It's a podcast series. It goes through World War I in such amazing detail, bringing together all of the information put out by historians. And then, of course, the game Battlefield One, which is a video game, but a video game that tells the story of World War I in a truly fascinating and really effective way, I think. We'll be back with someone who's telling the story of veterans. Her name is Karen Lloyd, retired colonel, U.S. Army. She's now the director of the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress, and they want to hear your stories. We're going to talk to Karen Lloyd coming up right after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we're doing. And you know where we're doing it. Obviously, at ConnectingVets.com, but also on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our team of military veterans is working hard each and every day to get you the information that you need to live your best veteran life. And the best way to get it from us, follow us on social media. Again, 
at Connecting Vets on all of the major platforms. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Army, retiring as a colonel who's now doing some pretty fascinating stuff that's tied to the military. She is the director of the Veterans History Project, retired Colonel Karen Lloyd. Karen, good morning. How are you today? Hey, Eric. Thanks so much, and what a nice introduction. Well, of course, a nice introduction for a nice person who's doing some nice work with the Veterans History Project. But before we talk about that, let's just talk a little bit about your time in the Army. As I mentioned, you retired as a colonel from the United States Army, but give us a little bit of that background, you know, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while serving in the Army. Well, I'm a service brat, so I moved all over the place and fell in love with flying Uh, went to Army ROTC, and it was when they were just introducing women uh, into a variety of uh, different fields um, and uh, got my private pilot's license that the Army paid for, went to the Medical Service Corps basic course, uh, did well. They sent me to Korea for a year, came back to flight school, was the first Medical Service Corps uh, female medevac pilot, Um, went on to serve um, in aviation for 14 years, Uh, commanded the airfield at Grafenbeer, which was great because I got to meet a lot of folks there, Um, and then uh, finished my career as a comptroller, counting money uh, at both at the Pentagon and at Fort Rucker, home of Army Aviation, and at uh, the Corps of Engineers. Uh, So um, thoroughly enjoyed my time and really enjoyed my time as an aviator, Uh, but counting money wasn't so bad, Uh, and was fortunate after I retired Uh, to move over to the Library of Congress, and I am in my dream job. I mean, people, I mean, I just can't imagine, um, you know, living the dream, and that's what I tell folks I get to do for the first time. I feel like I'm really, really giving back, Um, and it's so very, very special. Well, it sounds like it was a fairly smooth transition for you when you left the Army. What would you say contributed most to to allowing you to have that kind of a good transition from working in the Army right into your dream job and the great work that you're doing now? I was fortunate. Um, I had a boss who understood that in the military, you don't interview for jobs. You generally get them by reputation so that I had no little to no experience interviewing. So he got Um, some uh, executives at the Corps of Engineers, which was my last assignment, and each of them talked to me about some aspect of of transitioning and what that was like. And I think the best advice I got was from Pat Rivers, and she said, when you do the interview, remember, it's not just them interviewing you, it's you interviewing them deciding if it's a good fit. Because if it isn't a good fit, you'll be doing this again in six months. Um, and, and that, that for me really resonates today. Oh, it absolutely does. And it's very true. It's not just, uh, the company finding the right fit for them, but the worker finding the right fit for them. Of course, Colonel Lloyd, you have found the right fit for you as the director of the Veterans History Project. So for those who are not familiar with the Veterans History Project, someone comes up to you on the street and says, what's this all about? What do you say to that person? Well, one of the things I ask is, who's the veteran in your life or your community? What we try to do is reach out to veterans across uh, the United States and ask them to reach out to the veterans and listen, really listen to their stories. I would suggest to you that in communities across the United States, there are veterans hidden in plain sight because they don't talk about their stories because they think people really don't want to hear about them. I'm an example of that, and I've got other, ex- other examples of that. 
and and I we have over 108,000 collections, um, and we get uh, researchers that come all the time and uh, ask us about different kinds of uh, stories that we might have in our collections, and they're absolutely fascinating. It really is a fascinating project, one that dates back up really appropriately as Veterans Day this year is marks the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day that ended at World War One. dates back to World War One. goes through today and is gathering, I mean, not just audio, not just written and print stuff. You guys are gathering a little bit of everything from the past 100 years, aren't you? We certainly are. I mean... The stories are important and the oral histories are important because you can hear the voices and, and learn what they saw, felt, and did during their experience. But as important are the photographs, the memoirs, the diaries, the original artwork. They, they just really bring uh, a level of depth to what uh, the veterans did uh, during their service. Of course, I think when we think about historic veterans. We think about the big names, the Pattons, the MacArthur's, the Schwarzkopf's, the, the, the generals, the leaders, the war heroes, the Medal of Honor recipients. But this Veterans History Project doesn't just focus on the leaders or the big names. It focuses on kind of the entire experience of the veteran community. What I am most proud about is that our collection primarily is privates through captains. And I would like to suggest to you that that's really where the stories happened. When people look at movies or, or they read books or they look at documentaries, they're not doing it for the wars. They're doing it for the individuals that were a part of those wars to learn about their stories. If you think about Hacksaw Ridge came out a couple years ago with Desmond Doss, the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor uh, conscientious, objective, uh, conscientious, conscientious Objective Medic. Um, we have several of his collections. Uh, we have uh, collections, the diary from Colonel John Stavast, who was in the Vietnam Hanoi Hilton. One of the things he did was um, in his diary, he talked about the pilots that came in and the aircraft they flew and whether there was a one or two seater. And one of the entries we have from him is uh, the 26th of October was when uh, John McCain came in. And it's just absolutely fascinating. And we have John McCain's story as well. So we have these collections. They talk to each other, and it's absolutely fascinating. But you're right. We have them from World War I through the current conflicts and letters. Letters are so amazing. But we really don't have a lot of letters after Vietnam. And I would like to suggest to you that's because of social media. And people are starting, were starting to use emails and weren't thinking, wow, I should be keeping those emails. And I would ask kind of a call to action for some of our recent vets to be thinking about those amazing letters that they wrote and emails that they wrote back and forth and thinking about printing those off and saving those as part of their stories. We're speaking with Karen Lloyd, director of the Veterans... Whoa, little computer glitch there. We'll edit this out. <laughs> Three, two, one. Director of the Veterans History Project. Uh, what is the point of this, Karen? What is the goal of the Veterans History Project? Is it just to gather a whole bunch of cool information? Or do you think it can be useful for society, for researchers, for journalists? Uh, how do you view uh, the Veterans History Project as it can be functional and useful? What is key to our, our mission is that we, are, uh, it, we collect we preserve, we have a world-class preservation conservation lab, but most importantly, we allow access. 
and access to anybody that's interested, whether it's a family member, whether it's a journalist, whether it's a student, whether it's a teacher, uh, whether it's a member of Congress or their staff, anybody that's interested. And we don't want to lose these stories. When you think about it, if we, if you don't get your veteran to tell his story, when they die, their story dies with them. And that's so unfortunate and so sad. One of the new initiatives that we have going on is with the Gold Star families. Uh, a couple years ago, Congress passed a law, and it now allows us to reach out to those Gold Star family members and a parent, a spouse, a sibling, or a child over 18 and work with them to get the stories of those loved ones that paid the ultimate sacrifice. We do not want to lose any stories. If your veteran is deceased, we can do collections of 10 or more, and they're not a Gold Star family. We can uh, collect 10 or more photographs or emails or letters or, or, or military documents uh, or their journal, their written memoir or their diaries. So we, we are looking for oral histories of, of those veterans that are still with us. But for those veterans that are deceased or Gold Star families, uh, we, we are looking for much more. Of course, as I understand it, the Veterans History Project is also looking for more stories from some specific groups, including African-American veterans, Latino and Native American veterans. Their stories are just as important as anybody else's, even though there may be fewer of them out there. Is that right, Karen? You are exactly right. And we have been targeting those particular uh, ethnicities to make sure. I mean, as a female veteran, I know that we don't have enough women veterans and their stories. And I know that my story was different from the guys that were going in the same time that I went in. I mean, I went to flight school and I had my classmates tell me, you know, you, you're taking a man's slot here. I mean, things that, that today people look at you and say, really? They said that. They said that and they weren't embarrassed by it. Um, so the women's stories are really unique. The Native American stories, I'm really, really proud that the work that we've done with the Native American communities, both the nations and the tribes, uh, be uh, in our first 16 years, we had about 276 stories. We've collected 73 over the last two years by reaching out across the U.S. Um, to these different uh, tribes and nations. They, they're, they understand that we're a trusted place um, and and we will hold sacred their stories, um, and we think that's so important. We're looking out for not just the Hispanics, but also the African Americans. All of these stories are different, and it's so important uh, that they understand that we are interested in their stories. And again, the bulk of our collections are privates through captains, and, and people don't understand that that is where these amazing stories take place. One of the stories that I love it's about a Sergeant Alice Dixon. It was World War II. She was with the all-black 688 Postal Company in Lyon, France. And she was in charge of packages. And so if she got packages and she found out that the veteran had been de it was deceased, she had to return the package. Well, one day, one of the packages had a bottle of liquor in it. It was whiskey. And she got excited. And she said, well, I know I can't send this forward, and I know I can't return it. What do I do? So she went to her captain, and she said, I just don't know what to do. I've got this package with whiskey. Um, and what do you recommend? What do you? And, and her captain said, oh, don't worry about it, Alice. Just leave it here. I'll take care of it. So she goes back to work completely relieved and goes to the barrack that night with the rest of the girls and says, wow, man, I had a day. And then she described what happened. And they looked at her and they said, you fool. 
you should have brought it to us. We would have taken care of it. <laughs> so it's things like that that aren't in the history books, but they are a part of our stories. And it's, it, it's these veterans that are really talking about what happened to them. And it's really fascinating to watch. We had a researcher come in about three months ago and was looking at Dear John letters and was also looking about the Jody calls, which really do, if you if you think about them, talk about, you know, Jody's the guy that's in your hometown that's going to your, steal your gal while you're off serving. <laughs> yeah. And and it was absolutely fascinating that they found she found a a, a bulk of of different uh, veteran stories that talked about receiving Dear John letters, and then also did the research with the American Folklife Center, uh, which is which is one of our organ our parent organization, and found these Jody calls that were a part of the, of that as well. So just fascinating things and never quite sure what folks are going to come and look for. Sometimes they look for mentions of food. Um, and it's really interesting to to hear what the veterans talk about, like the mess halls and what that was like and their experience in the mess hall and whether it was good or whether it was bad. We've been speaking with Karen Lloyd, retired colonel, United States Army and current director of the Veterans History Project. Karen, if people are hearing this and saying, you know what, I'd love to find out more about this. I'd like to look through the archives or I'd like to donate my story to those archives. Where do they go and how do they go about doing those things? Well, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, we have a website, loc.gov forward slash vets, and that really gives you a flavor for uh, what we have. You can do a search of our database, uh, use it from that website, but that website also has a copy of our field kit, which are the instructions on how to do it, and it's really, really simple. I mean, what you, what you can do is have a smart device, have a tripod, two lavalier mics, and a splitter which puts the two mics into the smart device, and there's your recording studio. So that's one way to do it. Uh, You can reach us by email, vohp at loc.gov, and ask us questions. We have a Facebook page, Vets with an S, History Project, and we also have a toll-free line, 888-371-5848. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear from veteran, volunteer veteran service organizations that are interested in hosting a project. We will send out at no cost to you um, a workshop. We will, uh, you know, gather 25 folks and, and we will provide a trained oral historian so that you can host a workshop. And then uh, we would love to come out um, and do a donation ceremony with the collections you receive. Last week, I had the pleasure of being out in Central Valley, the 10th District of uh, California. Representative Denham had worked with uh, his veterans and was going to be donating 21 collections. And so at the local VFW, he had a gathering of the veterans. So I got to meet these veterans who were kind enough to donate their stories and then bring back those 21 collections to the Veterans History Project. So special, so honored to be able to meet these veterans that, that, that chose to tell their story and to share it with us here at the Library of Congress. So there's lots of ways. And let us know what we can do to help you individually or also as a part of a group. We've been speaking with Karen Lloyd, director of the Veterans History Project. One more time, the website that people should go to to check out the Veterans History Project, what would that website be? loc.gov forward slash vets with an S.
There you go. And that's where you can go to check out those archives of so many stories dating back to World War I, which ended 100 years ago this Veterans Day and continuing forward to the modern era. And it goes to show you some things change, but some things stay the same. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. And more importantly, thank you for the amazing work that you and your team are doing on this. Eric, thank you so much for having us. And we look forward to your listeners uh, reaching out to us so that we don't lose any more veteran stories. You're listening to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. You should check out the website and also check us out on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So if you give us a little click on your mouse or tap on your phone at any of those four social media sites, you'll be that much closer to living your best veteran life and getting all the news and information coming out from our team of veterans and the veteran adjacent. Like a horrible story being reported by Matt Sainsing yesterday about a Green Beret who had to deal with, um, boy, just a litany of horrible things. So he's in Iraq in 2004. Sergeant First Class Richard Stasekel took a bullet in his left lung from a sniper rifle. And you'd think, wow, that's horrible. He survived that, but man, what a horrible thing to go through. It's not the most horrible thing he's gone through, I don't think. It's not even the most horrible thing that his lungs have gone through. Because last year, the 37-year-old Green Beret went on an ambulance ride to an Army hospital, received a CT scan, and was sent on his way after reporting some health issues. Just a few months later, he learned from a civilian doctor that he had aggressive lung cancer. There was no diagnosis made by the Army physicians that took a CT scan, and Stasekel told Connecting Vets Mount Sainsing, they knew about it, somebody saw it, and nobody told me. He's now terminally ill with stage for cancer with tumors spreading to his spleen and neck. The civilian doctor said that if he had taken that CT scan, there's no way he could have possibly missed that. Essentially saying, I don't know how anyone could miss that. Here's the quote from uh, Dr. Louis Laskowski talking to Fox 46, which I believe is down in uh, North Carolina. It was completely obvious. I can't fathom how any experienced radiologist missed this case. If I were testifying in court, I would call it a case of gross malpractice. Now, despite not receiving a diagnosis of this, the alleged negligence neg- negligence and malpractice, Stasekow will most likely not get his day in court. Do you know why that is? because active duty troops are actually barred from suing the federal government for any ailment stemming from military service. That goes back to a 1950 Supreme Court decision known as the Ferris Doctrine, and it's it's very strange. It means that for a member of the military to essentially sue the government, the military, you need to get their permission. Now, in this case, he actually might be able to get that, but... Um, it just seems that it is something that needs to go away, man. I, I don't know. I don't understand. And I'd like to have a legal expert explain to me why the Ferris Doctrine needs to be in place. Now, we do have uh, the Pentagon's opinion on this. And this came out from a Major Carla Gleason speaking to Fox 46 in North Carolina. Reversal of the Ferris Doctrine would destroy the premise of the no-fault compensation system currently applicable to all workers' compensation programs, including military compensation programs. What? What does that mean? No fault compensation system. So he can be compensated, but the person who didn't do it or who did it 
did whatever it was that he's being compensated for is not held responsible for it? Is that what she's saying? I'm not sure because that statement, and this comes from someone who's worked in public affairs and public relations and all that stuff. That statement seems like a non-statement. It seems like a a verbal trickery. Like they're trying to not say anything while giving you this vague, like, well, if we did that, it would undo this, which would undo that, which would undo this. Yeah, but so what? So what? It would destroy the premise of the no-fault compensation system. Well, if a case like this needs to destroy the premise of it, then maybe the premise needs to be destroyed. Uh, the state calls case is outside the realm of normal workers' compensation case, cases, though, is what they're saying. And the chemotherapy pills he's taking, they say work okay, but doctors told him over time the cancer will become resistant to new medicine. Um, his wife says uh, to us at Connecting Vets that the whole situation is completely unfair to her husband and even more importantly, their daughters, who are 11 and 9. Here's the quote that she gave to Matt Sainsing. We're all human and mistakes are made. Human error happens. But the fact was it was noted and people signed off on it and said he was fine. I feel for my kids. They love their dad. Ah, boy. This is uh, another example of the issues that we have with the VA healthcare system and in this case the DOD healthcare system which are are not the same but they are certainly similar and they are linked together. This took place at the Womack Army Medical Center. This is an active duty military facility. You know this is one of those things when I hear people talking about the government being more involved in medicine uh, I'm very hesitant to, to want that. Why? Because I dealt with military medicine and I dealt with the uh, the the VA system for a short period of time too, and I didn't like what I saw personally from my experience and from what I saw. I remember being in the Navy and having to go in for an IV, and they missed my vein eight times, nine times. I mean, I was like a pincushion. They went in eight or nine times. I don't really have a fear of needles. Uh, as a child, I apparently did. I would run around the doctor's table when they were trying to give me the, uh, you know, they'd prick your finger to take the uh, take the drops of blood out. Yeah, I did not want that to happen. So I would actually run around the doctor's table and they'd have to catch me. And I was in pretty good shape, pretty speedy little kid back then, you know? So <laughs> these days I don't have those needle issues, but on that day at that hospital, I think it was, oh, I can't remember if it was in Iceland or if it was in Baltimore. I'm not sure where I was, but or Fort Meade, I should say, not Baltimore. But uh, they stuck me seven, eight, nine times, something like that. And eventually at the end, I said, I don't want you to stick me with that needle again. Never had a problem with anybody finding my vein ever before at any medical facility. And they missed it seven times, eight times, something like that. So what I ended up doing, I drank a bag of IV fluid. You know what that's like? It's unpleasant. It's like drinking, um, I don't know, kind of like a, a salty water. Gatorade, but without any flavor. It was not good, man. It's not pleasant. There's a reason they put it in there uh, through the veins. One, it it go, works a lot faster. Two, it tastes like garbage, so you don't want to do that. But you know, there there's so that's a minor thing that I had to deal with. People not being able to draw my blood. We're supposed to be medical professionals for someone who doesn't have like hidden veins. Like never had a problem with anybody finding my veins before. And then you have something like this, where a radiologist says. This, in the civilian world, would be gross negligence and malpractice. This guy had very clearly had lung cancer. They had to have seen it, but they said, no, nope, he's okay. So did they see it and not know what it was? Are they just not good at their jobs? Or was there something more to it? Was it just laziness, dereliction of duty? 
I don't know. But whatever it was, doesn't look like there's going to be a court case about it because, again, of this doctrine that doesn't allow active duty military members to sue the military for uh, things that happen while they're serving, which, uh, again, I'd love to have a legal expert explain to me what the reason for that is. I think I'm going to try and find someone next week to do that. Well, you've been listening to the Connecting Vets Daily, the Friday edition, Veterans Day weekend coming up. Hope you have a fantastic one. And truly, I wish you and yours, all veterans and all their families, everybody who's ever served, a happy Veterans Day. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the day. You have earned it. We'll see you again Monday. Have a great day. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 